This program is pre-recorded. Well, let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Welcome. Today is the Feast of Padre Pio. St. Pius of Petrolcina, and um, he's, he's, he's popular. He, he's, a, he's a great wonder worker. And, um, you know, it's interesting to think that the 20th century was a century full of wonder workers. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, uh, uh, Solanus Casey, Brother Solanus Casey, and Padre Pio, uh, in that cynical age... We just got showered with miracles, and they kind of are an affront to the ethos of that world. So, well, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in them the fire of your love, send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Today's reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, just just a brief um, disquisition on Ecclesiastes. It is, um, it's, it's a book uh, that talks about a fellow named Koheleth, uh, who is the assemblyman. It's kind of interesting. The Kohel... Uh, is uh, is the assembly uh, it's kind of what uh, the word we would use for church almost so um uh, the ecclesia is church in greek as you know we get the words ecclesia and all the western languages from it which means the assemblyman so this is the assemblyman he's the he's koheleth from the kahal i did say kohel kahal the kahal was the the assembly the, of of um of um Israel. So uh, it, we don't really know when the book was written. I don't think it's, it's um, uh, you know, it's supposedly written by King Solomon. Maybe, who knows? Um, we, we're not quite sure who wrote it. But, well, let's forget the book as literature and look at it as the Word of God here. 
So let's see here. Where did I put the reading? I, I, I hate it when I lose the reading, but I'll find it. Uh, right. This is um, one of the most beautiful readings, I think, in, in the Bible. It is, you know, there's a time for everything uh, under the heavens, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. It, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, reading. But then it, it gets depressing. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is is kind of depressing. It starts out vanity of vanities, which means a puff of wind. It's just all a puff of wind. And it, it, it doesn't seem to have any hope to it. But what it does is, is I think, portray life without Christ. You know, that, that um, there's no resolution to these things, no, no kind of, well, hope. So uh, the, the, uh, the book is about, um, well, what I think, what life is like without the Messiah. So what advantage has the worker from his toll? I've considered the task that God has appointed. He's made everything appropriate to its time and has put time, the timeless into their hearts. Now, this is a fascinating word. It, uh, the, the timeless, it's olam uh, in Hebrew. Let me, let me make sure I'm not making that up. Um, but I'm quite sure it's olam. And the word olam means, well, it really means everything. It's a word that I believe comes from uh, a root uh, that, that, that has to do with, let me make sure I'm, I'm not pontificating on a beautiful word that isn't in the text. Let me see. It's come also. Yeah, olam. Uh, it's a word that comes from the unseen, in other words, it talks about long duration. It can be antiquity, it can be the future. Uh, it just means eternity, timelessness. But it's a word that that has to do in Hebrew with with everything. Uh, the 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 um, uh, Kabbalists talk about tikkun olam, the restoration of the olam, the entirety. So uh, it isn't just temporal uh, foreverness it's spatial uh, 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 it's spatial <laughs> everythingness I know it's kind of hard to to really translate the word alam but he has made everything appropriate to its time and he has put the timeless into their hearts <sighs> there's a lot of sermons right in that phrase and of course, I'll try to preach them all in the next two minutes. But this this timeless idea uh, is in our hearts. The, the idea that we want to know everything about everything. That human beings are by nature, in, in a funny way, scientists. We we want to know all that we can know about reality. And he's put this this olam into our hearts. But he's made everything appropriate to its time. C.S. Lewis, in, this, in the Screw Tape Letters, which I quote entirely too much, talks about human beings as living in time but created for eternity. And how do how do we approximate eternity? He says undulation. In other words, things go up, things go down. And the devil wants to convince us that the down is forever and there's never going to be an up. Uh, or sometimes that it's always up and there'll never be a down. We can expect ups and downs in life. 
And that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, we can only approximate the eternity for which we are designed until we actually are in it. So we live in a world, and I think this is the, the, the biblical principle involved, we live in a world of, of time, of, of growing and, 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 and shrinking. You know, we, we are young, we get old. We live in the world of time. And we have to be practical about the world of time. There's a time to rent, a time to sow, a time to be silent, a time to speak. It isn't all the same. But we still have our hearts and minds fixed on the eternal. Because that's what we're really designed for. So, and remember, eternal doesn't mean just on and on and on and on and on like I go. No, it means, it means, it means timeless. That's what the word eternal means, without time. And how we can describe time, um, uh, or how we can describe timelessness in time, it's just not possible. So, as St. Paul says elsewhere, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him. Well, all right, let's look at the gospel. Luke, the ninth chapter, the 18th verse and following. Uh, once when Jesus was praying in solitude and the disciples were with him, I thought he was in solitude. Well, if we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, wait here, watch and pray. I'm going over there to pray. So his disciples weren't far away, but he was in solitude. And then he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, Elijah. Now, this is the Gospel of Luke, and I think I've shared my my harebrained theory on the writing of the Gospels. The Gospels, I believe, were written by their human authors simply as demonstrating certain points from the sum total of Jesus' words and deeds. The Gospel itself, the idea of the Gospel, was an oral phenomenon. St. Paul says, if someone comes to you preaching another Gospel than the one I preach, the Gospel was, was a verbal thing. These four documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I believe, were not written as evangelistic texts. That's why they're kind of disappointing to us. We want to know everything about Jesus, what his favorite food was, what he did on a Thursday night kind of thing. And it's not in there. We don't know what color his eyes were from the Gospels. The Gospels were not written by their human authors. And I say that by their human authors, because their ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. But by their human authors, they were written, I believe, to take certain points from the uh, total uh, uh, of, of Jesus' words and deeds and, and to demonstrate a truth to a certain group. Uh, I, I got this idea from a friend of mine, my, my compadre Luis, um, and he, he once asked me, this, was, this would have been, oh gosh, at least 40 years ago. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that when Jesus was walking on the water, he meant to pass by them. And Louis asked me, where were they going? Where was he going? It had never occurred to me. I said, what? That's a, some ridiculous question. Where was he going? And then I thought about it. That's a really good question. He meant to pass by them. And I pondered and searched and searched and pondered. And finally, somewhere I found out that the phrase to pass by is a cliche in the Old Testament for manifestation of divinity. Uh, Moses is in the cleft of the rock, and uh, God will pass by him. In the book of Job, he says, were you to pass by me, I would not know you. Uh, and there are other instances. We, I, um, Elijah in the cave, that these things pass by him. 
This is manifestation of divinity. And the Gospel of Mark starts out, uh, it's the, by the way, the Gospel of Mark is the only one of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that calls itself a Gospel. So, uh, the Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and then the high point of the Gospel is the centurion saying, truly this was the Son of God. And if you look closely, it really does seem that so much of that gospel is about Jesus showing his divinity. And I know all sorts of revisionists who say, and oh, they just tacked the resurrection account on the end, implying that the resurrection sort of didn't happen. That's crazy. The resurrection was not the purpose of that gospel. It was the divinity of Christ, which was shown by his life. And it ends, oh, and by the way, he rose from the dead. Uh, that changed the whole way I look at the Gospels. Matthew, it seems, was written to prove to Jewish people that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of prophecy. The Gospel of John, if you look at the second chapter uh, to the end, uh, it's, he says, these things have been written so that you might know Jesus is the Messiah. Who's the you? I really believe that you were the followers of John the Baptist, of which John the Evangelist was one. Uh, it's all about, John said he wasn't the Messiah. He said that Jesus was the Messiah. So we come to Luke. Luke is part of a two-volume work, Luke and Acts. And it is addressed to Your Excellency Theophilus. There was a Theophilus who was the last of the sons of Annas to be a high priest. Annas put his sons in that position and controlled the temple revenues thereby and the, the politics of, of Judea. So this Your Excellency Theophilus seems to have been the person or may have been the person who was uh, pushing the suit against St. Paul with the Romans. And if you look at it, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are all about Jesus in the temple, uh, uh, his relationship with the temple. And the first four lines in the Gospel of Luke are the best Greek in the New Testament. And when it says ministers of, of the word, that can better be translated assistance in the law court, in the, in, in the court case. Logos didn't just mean word. It means, uh, uh, a, it can mean a court case. It can mean a thousand things. But the word hyperetes, which is uh, translated ministers, when we think of ministers of the word, we think of somebody reading the Bible out loud or preaching. Now, a hyperetes is an assistant, the assistance of the law case. And this is why it talks about eyewitnesses and all this sort of thing. So um, how did I get off on this? Well, this is the Gospel of Luke, and it's interesting to contrast it with the other uh, uh, declaration here because it's clear in the other one that Jesus is uh, is looking at, at, at a Roman uh, uh, city full of Roman temples and pagan gods uh, and saying, who you say I am and Peter is saying that you're the real God whereas that's left out of this text in other words they weren't going to put that in a legal text <laughs> that would be dealing with the Romans so it's essentially the same story but they leave out the location uh, I, I don't know if that's at all interesting but uh, to me it's very helpful to understand why there are differences in the scripture because each of the four gospels each of Matthew Mark Luke and John were written to a specific person or audience. And those details of the story of the life of Christ, which were pertinent to the story, are put in. That's why they don't seem to agree all the time. Uh, they're not 
they're not, they don't claim to be gospels. So I think this is kind of interesting. Uh, when you read, when someone tells you, well, the scriptures contradict each other. No, they don't. They emphasize different points of, of, of the story of Christ. And the story of Christ is, is, is real and, uh, unchanged the way it has been handed down from generation to generation. So I don't know if you find that interesting or helpful, but I find it interesting and helpful to me. Um, let me see if there's anything else I want to say about this. Um, I don't think so. We're going to do the, um, the, the Alleluia verse as our, our word of the day today. But right now we're going to go to a break. And uh, it, the, today is going to be a letter show. I apologize. I've got so many letters. Uh, I won't be taking calls today. But we will. I will try and get through as many of these letters as I can. I have so many that I'm behind on. Again, we won't be taking calls today. It's a letter show. All right, we'll be right back. We receive hundreds of your phone calls every day thanks to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line. Our sponsor offers flexible life insurance and annuities. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. Hi, this is Father Simon. We're back, and as I said, I regretfully I will not be taking phone calls today. It's a letter show. I've got so many letters to catch up on, so please forgive me. But the letters are fun. I got some really good ones. So let's go to letters. This is from an anonymous person in Minneapolis. On nine thirteen twenty two, you gave the same glib advice to that. Most mothers here at least once enjoy this time because it goes too fast. No, 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 no. Please don't say that to any mother when she's overwhelmed. Do not tell her to enjoy this time. This offhand comment is going to depress her even more. My youngest is in eighth grade, and I do not miss those days. I recently held my sister's newborn baby. He's a cutie pie, but I do not miss having a baby. I do not miss the sleepless nights. I do not miss the colic and the teething, the unruly toddlers, the mischief, and I most of all do not miss people telling me to enjoy this time. Raising kids is work. That's in capital letters. And much of it, and much of it is not enjoyable. I have a lot of good memories from when we were raising small children, but I do not miss those days. Encourage her to get help, whether that be child care, household help, or a therapist. Well, I would agree with that, 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 uh, you should get help. Um, I was the youngest of seven, uh, and, um, also, uh, when there was a crisis in the family, uh, we all had to chip in and, uh, when I was much, much younger, I did quite a bit of babysitting and, uh, it was crazy making. Uh, and there were times that I had to call for help. Um, however, I think that you probably misunderstood what I meant or what I said. And if you did, many other people did. I'm not saying that you have to enjoy the colic and the screaming and the mess, 
but you have to enjoy what you can enjoy. My mother came from people who had some, uh, well, substance, and when they didn't, they pretended they did. So she she lived, she grew up in the lap of luxury. My father did not. My father was poor, aspiring to be a lawyer. The Depression happened. They were married. My, my grandfather, on the wealthy side of the family, lost everything. So all they had was a, a little wedding breakfast, and uh, they started off life poor. And... Uh, um. We were not wealthy people, you know. Uh, uh, my my parents eventually did well, but that was, of course, after the kids were grown and and um, my dad was a canny investor. So, but I grew up fairly poor, you know. That that rugs were threadbare and furniture was worn, and um, it was probably a great struggle for a woman who had grown up with servants and she was very she never meant she never talked about that she never minded it she never she's a remarkable woman so maybe that that colors my judgment on this but uh she got help i was often shipped off to my godmothers across the street um i remember i was a horrible child i remember uh i i uh, bag groceries in the local grocery store, and old Ms. O'Hara came through the line, and she said, oh, I remember when they brought you home from the hospital. I thought she was going to say you were the cutest thing. She said, you were horrible. Your mother didn't sleep for a year. So, yeah, it it yeah, it was tough. I, I made it tough for my, my mother. But my mother and my father believed that life as much as possible, even when they didn't have money, life was to be enjoyed uh my mother would uh, we would go on picnics and um uh my mother loved to do that and she would take every advantage every time she could to do something fun with us and we would meet dad downtown if possible and he would join the fun and it was fun for free it wasn't expensive fun it was it was a bunch of baked chicken and a watermelon in in in, in a public park um the the uh, what's another good example of of mother doing something fun we sang we did dishes and we sang and uh, you know so many of us want life to be perfect and to have the perfect home and my let things go uh, our lawn was the disgrace of the neighborhood because there were seven kids playing on it constantly um there was no ostentation. The treasure of my mother and my father were their children. And uh, they hadn't started out life that way. Dad was going to be rich. But the Depression and seven kids intervened because they were Catholic. And they, they believed what the church taught. Um, you know, I, I apologize for being a little too personal. But kind of about this issue, it's all I got. I remember, as I was mentioning, in this in this crisis, family crisis, uh, where we all had to kind of pitch in, I remember I was down, I'm sure I've shared this story with you before, but I was down in the basement doing laundry. There were mountains of laundry because uh, the mom of the family was unable to do it at the time. And um, I'm doing laundry, and uh, my godson is charging around on a tricycle in the basement, and he said, come and play with me. And I said, I can't. I got to work. He said, I don't want you to work. I want you to play with me. And I thought, 
the laundry will still be here in a while. He won't. And so I got on the other tricycle and charged around the basement with him because the day was going to come when he was going to say, he was not going to say, I want you to play with me. Um, so often we leave our children with angry memories and that this time really does pass. It's a horrible time when you got um, three or four small children, as my mother did. The older children were grown, which was a worry of a different kind. But um, yeah, my one of my brothers was always getting in trouble, and uh, he was older. Uh, uh, so they had seven difficult children, and they did their best to play with them. Uh, you know, I think it's funny. You've heard the saying that, we teach the children and play with the adults, you know, the bingo outing for the senior citizen club. Well, Jesus taught the, the adults and he played with the children. So I really do think that that our, our kind of uh, Better Homes and Gardens and Martha Stewart approach to the home beautiful, well, that can, mom had the home beautiful when we were out of it. Uh, she had the home glorious when we were in it, and we had a lot of fun. So I'm not saying that, oh, it's not so bad. You should enjoy the colic and the screaming and the fights and all. No, that, that's not. What I'm saying is try as much as you can to laugh with your children. Why should everything be about how how bad things are going, how everyone's angry? Maybe I'm wrong, but, um, you know, you don't miss those days, Anonymous. Well... Uh, there are parts of them uh, that I do miss and parts that I don't. And I'm sure that's true for anyone who's been there. So um, I didn't mean to be glib, but uh, I think that we have such high standards sometimes for ourselves. It's the story of Martha and, and Mary. Martha, Martha, why are you worried about so many things? One thing alone is necessary. You know, stop worrying about the housekeeping. Sit here and talk to me. That's what Jesus was saying, I think, and I think that's true for our children, too. I may be wrong, and if you, I, I think that Anonymous is very correct. You can't do it alone. you got to get help. As I said, when we had a crisis in the family, I and everyone else had to pitch in, um, get help. Um, but uh, understand that, that um, Joy is is a great gift to give to your children and, and laughter. All right, I, I I'm again. Forgive me if I was glib, but remember what we say in the Hail Holy Queen: weeping and mourning in this valley of tears. Um, and also, one more thought about this: I, I I'm sure I've shared this with you many times, but God gives us a few people to teach us the nature of love. That love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling; it is sacrifice, and he gives us the poor and he gives us children and they're the ones who teach us the nature of love because love is is a tough gig so at any rate all right let me let me go to another letter uh let's see how am i doing time wise dear voice in my head all right let's see here all right could you please explain this is from wade uh in jacksonville could you please explain uh, the presentation of Jesus is a joyful mystery of the rosary, but also one of the seven sorrows of Mary. Well, our blessed mother, well, thanks, and I appreciate your show. Oh, bless you. Um, uh, the seven sorrows of Mary and, and the joyful mysteries, 
Something can be, an experience can be joyful and sorrowful at the same time. Our Blessed Mother, like you and I, lived in time. And when she walked up those steps to the temple with her baby in her arms, there was great joy um, that, that um, she had never expected to be a mother. Uh, apparently, she had, uh, the strong tradition is she had taken a Nazarite vow. Um, and I, I suspect that that was probably true. And there she was, miraculously a mother. And it's all going swimmingly until this prophet comes up and says, a sword will pierce your heart. Uh, so, you know, that something can be joyful and sorrowful at the same time. I don't think that's a problem. That the presentation was about the joy of having given birth to the Messiah and the sorrow of it was that a sword would pierce her heart because the Messiah was going to suffer. So I hope that helps. Let's see here. This is, oh, this is just a lovely letter. Um, this is uh, a regular caller. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, one of the, one of the voices in my head passed this on. Um, <clears throat> there's a woman, I, I don't know her name. Um, uh, I may recognize it, but, it's, it was presented to me anonymously. Uh, she's in poor health but great spirits, and she came back to the church and wanted Relevant Radio to know about her reversion to the faith. So if you're listening to this, I I, I will be praying for you. And uh, that's, just, that's good news, that, that, um, that uh, that's the kind of thing that we're here to do. And by the way, uh, you're the ones who who have done it. Uh, by your kindness and your generosity. So, God bless. Let's see. I got another one here. This is uh, <clears throat> the question about worshiping idols. This is from Stacy. Okay. Father, I was listening when a woman asked recently why Catholics seem to worship statues of Mary and the saints. Would you please tell her for me that as a recent widow to a wonderful godly man, I often kiss his photo and talk to it. Now I know, of course, that the photo is not him, but I'm, I'm giving in to my very human need to see his dear face and feel his presence. And do so, as I do so, I pray to run my race as, as he and the crowd of witnesses cheer me on. In the same way, a statue is simply a likeness and a sort of touchstone as we ask for intercession from our family members, the saints, to talk to God on our behalf. Stacy, that's wonderfully put. I couldn't have said it better. Um, it, it's it's beautifully put. Um, you know that that um, uh, the scriptures are clear. You shall not make images of gods to worship them. No saint. We don't think saints are gods or goddesses. If we do, we are uh, sadly mistaken. I have never in my life. As I said to uh, that woman who called in, I've never in my life worshipped a statue. It's just a bunch of plaster. When it's broken, I throw it out. Um, so uh, this idea of, of worshipping saints, we don't. One of the problems, and I hope I wasn't too obscure in my answer to her, is that we understand worship differently than people who do not have the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The Eastern Catholics, the, the Latin Catholics, the Eastern, uh, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Church of the East, we all have 
the sacraments. We have the sacrifice of the Mass. And a wonderful, wonderful prayer that we say in the Divine Mercy Chaplet and that we learned at Fatima was, uh, I offer you the body and blood, the soul and divinity of your only beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for my sins and those of the whole world. What a beautiful prayer that is. I think that originates in Fatima, but um, it's certainly part of the Divine Mercy devotion. That's worship. There's only one way to worship God that's that's worthy, and that's by offering him this this wonderful, wonderful Messiah who is given to us as, as the Lamb of Sacrifice. So we, we, we worship God in the only way appropriate or fitting. That said, what most people think of as worship is a warm, warm feeling in the heart as you sing praise songs. And that's wonderful, but it's praise, it's not worship. We praise the saints, we praise one another, and we praise God. We only worship God. I've never offered a Mass to the Blessed Mother. I have never offered a Mass to the saints. We may have memorials of the saints uh, because they're, they're living Bibles for us to imitate, but we don't worship them. So, Stacy, that was wonderfully put. Wonderfully put. So, well, why don't we go to a break and we'll come back with uh, uh, Word of the Day. Will that work? And we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep reading letters. The Catholic Order of Foresters, the sponsor of our studio line, is hiring today. Several positions available throughout the U.S. Visit RelevantRadio.com slash Forester to learn more about how you can find your vocation with COF, an Illinois Life Insurance Society not licensed in all states. In constant sorrow Welcome back, and you know what time it is. It's time for the word of the day. All right. I want to take the word of the day from the the um, the Alleluia verse. I almost never, ever think about the Alleluia verse, but I want to here. Um, this is, uh, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is interesting because the word is, well, first of all, uh, in, in the, the verse, um, the word to serve is to deacon. <laughs> this is, see, it's a two for word of the day. Uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be waited upon, but to wait on tables himself. That, that's what it means. The, the word, the verb is, uh, uh, diakonin. And, uh, uh, it's in the past tense there, but he came, he didn't come to be waited on, but to do the waiting, the table waiting himself and to give his life. And this is the real word I want to talk about as a ransom. And the word, the word ransom, it, 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 it was the most common word, most common use of it was, uh, the purchasing money for manumitting a slave, a ransom, the price of ransoming, especially the sacrifice by which expiation is effected. So it, it's, it's literally the money price to free a slave. Uh, um, 
the, the 30 pieces of silver is very important. Uh, they put a price on a man's life. Uh, so I, I kind of think that's, that's a very interesting um, uh, understanding, that the word litron means, it means, well, we, we translate it as redemption, but it was it was it was the the price of of a slave and i believe let me pull this up i just should i should look so 30 pieces uh um the 30 pieces of silver i think was the price of a slave isn't that interesting let me see okay i believe it was uh, uh you know that's what he receives for his labor. It was a, it was a price. Uh, in Exodus 21, uh, verse 32, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. That's what Jesus was worth, because I'm the slave. And he paid his life worth 30 pieces of silver to ransom me and to ransom you. And that's what the word ransom means. It's a very specific word. It was it was it was money paid to free a slave, um, and I think I've shared this with you that redemption is the Latin word and it means to buy back. If a if a person was captured by pirates or captured in war or by brigands on the highway and sold as a slave, if his family knew where he was, they could would and had the means to do so, they would come and buy him back and restore him to his place in the family. So redemption is to be restored to your place in that family, which is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think that's a beautiful thing. So, well, let's go back to letters, which is what we're doing today. If I can find my letters. All right. Here, this is, let's see here. This is from Mona. Recently, I turned on Relevant Radio while driving, and I just caught the end of a talk I, I given by one of the fathers, either Father Simon or Father Rocky, about pharmacy and meds in the time of our Lord that were done by a shaman or something like that. I would really like to know what he was talking about. Well, it wasn't I, Mona, but I'll jump into it anyway, that that um, the word pharmakia means uh, means uh, herbal magic, uh, you know, that... that um, uh, there's a wonderful, in that uh, series, I, Claudius, uh, which was out many years ago, there's a wonderful um, uh, um, scene in which a Greek doctor is uh, uh, ministering to the Emperor Claudius, and um, you know he's got back problems and this sort of thing, and digestive problems, and he says, here, take these herbs and, um, uh, um, you know, get, try to get some exercise, uh, and the emperor says, "Aren't you going to prescribe certain prayers and 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 uh, uh, incantations?" And he says, "No, no, I'm not. You're the head of the Roman religion. Probably best left to you." In other words, he's being cynical, because they would they would give herbs and different potions and prescribe rituals to be said with them. So there wasn't a clear distinction between religion and medicine. And well. There really shouldn't be, but uh, I've known doctors who will pray for their patients sometimes secretly while they're uh, giving them medication. But in the ancient world, that that line was very fuzzy between medicine and uh, and and magic. So that probably was what he was, was referring to. Um, uh, you know, I, I lived for many many years in the Puerto Rican part of town and. Uh, lived among Puerto Ricans, and as many Caribbean people, they had a, a system of of 
of magic and the the stores where you went to get your weird potions and and see the voodoo practitioner was called the botanica in other words when when a puerto rican in the old days when they saw the word botanical for instance botanical shampoo they would get all nervous because we i don't do that i'm not i'm a catholic i don't do botanica and no 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 for us that just refers to plants so uh the word in greek is pharmakia it means herbal 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 medicine that sometimes seems magical so that might be what they were talking about mona i don't know if that helps at all but wasn't i who talked about it well i have now there you go let me do another letter here all right this is from sonia maria uh and uh she's just thanking me for something i said um uh, oh, that those who sinned will realize that they were wrong, have sorrow, and get right with God through confession. Through our reconciliation to God and prayers, our church will become holier and holier and teach the rest of the world the truth. Well, that, thank you. That's a very kind letter, Sonia. Um, and, you know, I, I sometimes get a little bit passionate about these things, but I, I think that so often we, we are ready to be angry when the appropriate... Um, response is sorrow. I, I remember that wonderful story in the scriptures where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he he sees, he st- it's on, on Palm Sunday, uh, he, he looks at Jerusalem and, and says, oh, if only you had known the time of your visitation. Um, let me see if I can find that text. Okay, I've got it, I've got it at the time. Um, Okay, press the magical button. Yeah, Luke 19:42. If only you had known on the day, uh, on this day, what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and wept over it and said, "If only you had known on this day." Now it's very interesting because the word, the word in some of the texts is. Uh, um, is episcopin if only you'd known the time of your visitation and it's oddly enough the same as the word for bishop um uh, it's a beautiful beautiful idea that the idea of the bishop is 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 to visit and 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 to strengthen but uh beautiful beautiful text so we should look at Christ's attitude toward Jerusalem, which was about to kill him. And his reaction was not anger, it was sorrow. Uh, and I think that, that we should we should be ready to grieve over the situation before we are ready to rebuke it. Jesus did plenty of rebuking, but it was it was done out of out of great love. So um I think that that's that's a lesson that's hard to learn. It's so much easier and more satisfying to be angry than it is to be um, solicitous. Okay. This is from a fellow sinister-handed individual, Jordan. The word sinistra in Latin means left-handed, from which we get the word sinister, and the right hand is uh, dextra. The the idea, the, the, the bad the bad uh, spirits hung around your left shoulder and the good ones around your right shoulder. We see that sometimes lampooned in, in cartoons. You'll see the devil on the left shoulder and the angel on the right shoulder. Well, the, the, the 
my fellow left-hander came up with a question. The sign of the cross is customarily done with the right hand, but it is considered to be actively bad. But is it considered actively bad to use the left hand instead? Well, if you're superstitious and believe that the, the demons are on the left side, well, but we're not. So, no, there's nothing wrong with making the sign of the cross, well, with the left hand, especially if your right hand isn't working. However, uh, it is more customary to do it with the right hand. Um, um, I wouldn't say it's bad. These are just customs. There's no no biblical uh, or even practical reason not to do it. So, there you go. It's It's, it's just a custom. So... All right, let me do another letter. This is from a person named Justice. Why do Catholics confess to a man if it is not necessary? Well, it is necessary. In the letter of St. James, the Bible does say, confess your sins to one another. I mean, that's the Bible. Confess your sins to one another. That, that's, let, me, let me pull up the exact reference. James 5.16. Not that they be forgiven, but that they be healed. We receive absolution, which is forgiveness and freedom. It means a washing away. It's a renewal of our baptism. So it's, it's in a sense, forgiveness and more. It's Christ who forgave us on the cross. And the church is just reminding us of that forgiveness and applying it. But it is biblical to confess your sins to other human beings. And that can be a little dangerous because if you confess your sins to the wrong person, they may, they may make you pay for it quite literally. Over the, over the eons of Christian life, we've developed a system where we can confess our sins to the church through the church's representative, the presbyter, the priest, and there's a, a, a safety, a security, a silence about it. We have what we call the seal of confession. And I know no priest who would willingly break the seal of confession. In other words, when you tell me something in confession, I cannot repeat it. I could repeat it in generic terms like when people come and they uh, talk to me about disobedience, that I could say, but I couldn't say when Fred What's-His-Name came and told me he was disobedient to his mother, I could not say that. I, I have to be extremely careful in talking about these things uh, so as not to reveal any information, specific information I've heard in confession. That's part of the seal of confession. A dimension of that is I can't even tell you about it. If you come to confession to me and I see you in the supermarket the next day and say, oh, how did how did it go with the gambling thing? I can't do that. I have to pretend I've never heard it. And frequently, uh, being very good at forgetting things, I literally, people come and say, remember, Father, when I told you this in confession? I look at them and say, I really don't. And I, I t- when I was uh, a pastor, I took pains to hear confessions in a confessional if I could, instead of face-to-face. But I think face-to-face confessions are not a good idea because state's attorneys want to uh, uh, want to make us uh, uh, mandated reporters in the confessional. And a priest would rather die. Most priests I know would rather suffer real imprisonment and real real suffering than, than betray the seal of confession. So I, I, it's, a, it's a solemn thing. 
not only can I not repeat what I hear, I cannot use the information. Were you to tell me a great stock tip in the context of a confession or tell me where a treasure was buried, I could not, uh, I could not, um, go dig up the treasure or invest in the stock tip. I can't use the information. Not only can I not say what I've heard, I cannot say what I've heard to you or to legal authorities, and I cannot use the information and I forget it. It's a wonderful, wonderful system we've developed over the years. In the early church, confession was private. It was usually done uh, once in your life uh, because it was not expected that you would commit a mortal sin. Uh, the big three were adultery, idolatry, and murder. And uh, um, you would go to confession publicly before the whole congregation. The bishop, who was usually the presider in the congregation, churches were small, gave you a penance. Uh, you did a, a public penance, maybe for six months or a year or even more. And uh, then you were brought back into the congregation. That was allowed to be, that was allowed to happen in most places only once. So frequent and private confession was a development that came later. But in her wisdom, the church decided, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit, to make it more private, lest there be harm done, more harm done by the public confession. So that's why we confess our sins, uh, because the Bible says we have to, uh, in James 5.16. And uh, it specifically says, confess your sins and have the elders come and pray for the sick person. So the anointing of the sick and confession, are the confession of sins, I think, biblically, are uniquely the the work of of the presbyterate the priests so let me see if i can i hope that answers your question justice let me see i have one one more small question our holy cards this is from jerry our holy cards rosaries prayer booklets and other items received in the mail blessed usually not other either way what to do with them throw them out be a blessing not consecration uh, uh, when something is sacred in itself, for instance, the blessed sacrament which is consecrated, that is never thrown out. That's consecration. A relic which is sacred in itself is never thrown out. It's treated with great respect. However, when a rosary is broken, it has lost its purpose. Thus, the blessing no longer applies. It applied to the rosary, not to a set of broken beads. Uh, to a holy card which is uh, just sent to you in the mail, you don't have to keep those. You can throw them out. The blessing applies to the function of the object when it's a blessed object. It does not apply uh, to the very substance of it. It does not become sacred sub substance as it would in consecration or in uh, incarnation <laughs> as as the human body. Which So that's why we treat relics with such great care. So I hope that answers the question. Well, I think we're about to end. Um, uh, um, the the music in the head indicates that Drew is coming up, and well, he's not a relic. He's pretty young, but maybe someday. Relevant radio can always be heard loud and clear on your smart speaker. Listen live. Listen to your favorite show whenever it fits your schedule. Access our exclusive In Conversation with God podcast, the Glenn Story Corner podcast, and more.